Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all that you have done and have given. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you today, I pray that you draw them by the power of your spirit. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Exodus 20 today. The Decalogue. <clears throat> that means the ten words. It's the Greek. Matter of fact, uh, the Jews didn't really call it the Ten Commandments. Uh, they called it the Ten Words. And uh, we've kind of picked up that term, the Ten Commandments. And, and uh, I think it's very appropriate for our vernacular and for our culture. But actually, our culture has a hard time with anything that says commandments don't they? Matter of fact, Ted Turner, many of you are familiar with him. He's the cable TV mogul. Uh, He has owned, well, he's a multi-multi-millionaire, and uh, many of you are very familiar with him. And he said this, we're living with outmoded rules. The rules we're living under are the Ten Commandments, and I bet nobody here even pays attention to them because they're so old. When Moses went up to the mountain, There were no nuclear weapons. There was no poverty. Actually, that part's not true. Today, Ten Commandments wouldn't go over. Nobody around likes to be commanded. Commandments are out. And, of course, we live in a culture that wants to say that there are no absolutes. What's true for you might not be true for me. One person's pornography might be someone else's art. There are no objective morals, just different opinions. If it feels good, do it. Anything goes. No culture is better or worse than another. Well, okay, maybe ISIS, maybe that's not a good culture. Maybe we shouldn't let them do what they want. But it's funny how we'll say there are no absolutes and we'll say everything is relative and everything can be defined for the culture until something comes up against us and we'll go, well, but that's not right. It's like the old story of the professor who said, okay, we're going to have a test Monday. Here's the material that you'll be tested over. And so everyone takes their test, they turn it in, and then he says, okay, I want you to get in order of height. And from the shortest to the tallest. And then he gives out the grades. And everyone who uh, is on the short end of the spectrum gets an A. And then those right next to them get the B. And then those right next to them get a C. And then a D. And then the tallest people in the class get an F. And those who are on the second half of the scale begin to mutter and say, this isn't right. He goes, wait, just a second now. When we started this class, everyone agreed or none of you disagreed that there was anything, that, that really truth or what is right is wrong is all completely subjective. It's up to what the person thinks. But now you're saying that it's not right. Yeah, but this is what you tested over. But you're using moral absolutes. You're saying you should and you ought. There aren't any shoulds and oughts if there or are no moral absolutes. And a God who loved us so much, and a God who called a people to be a light unto the other nation, 
he gave 10 absolutes. He gave absolutes so that we could understand who he is and what he basically desires of how we should live. You know, Francis Schaeffer uh, did a series uh, called How How Should We Then Live? And and we studied this my first semester in seminary. And it was really eye-opening for me. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, I I would say the Ten Commandments were given to the believers of Yahweh. Now, they can be applicable to any culture, but they are for us today, in a sense. And I want us to talk about this, because a lot of times we'll hear this question, well, we're not to live by any of the law anymore. Have you ever heard anyone say that? We don't have to live by the law. And that's true, partially. That's partially true. And today, I hope that you will understand the difference between what God has given us and what is best for us, and what God has, in fact, abolished. And so I hope by the end of this message you will understand that. Now, the Decalogue, again, the ten words, uh, there was, the law was given to the people. And actually, there were 613 laws that God gave the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, His people, to make them unique, to make them stand apart. And it governed their political, their social, their marital, their hygienic, and their religious and legal practices. So he set up, so to speak, a constitution, if you want to call that. He kind of set up a whole system why, how the people of Israel could live and how they would be unique and how they would be identified. Long before we understood what cholesterol and saturated fats were, God had given a dietetic law to the nation of Israel. Long before we understood uh, how germs work, quite frankly, how hygiene and how uh, just the way that we go about cleanliness made any difference in our health, God had given the nation of Israel the Levitical law. We look at it and it seems strange, but for a people who knew nothing uh, of our modern understanding of germs and hygiene, the people of Israel are already being prepared, yet they didn't know it. God was already offering them protection. He was already making them unique. He was already creating a diet that would enable them to live longer and have less health issues. We can look back at it now and go, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. But didn't everybody know that? Nope. But they were the chosen people. Now, understanding this, there are three types of laws that are given to us in the Old Testament. Three types of laws, okay? The first one is the moral law. The Ten Commandments are moral law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he never came and said, okay, ten laws don't apply. Every once in a while I hear somebody go, yeah, but ten laws don't apply anymore. Well, no, the moral law of God is still coming. As a matter of fact, at the end of this service, I'll show you the Ten Commandments are all found in the New Testament. Okay, so they didn't go anywhere. But Depending on what Jewish author or which theologian you, you listen to or write, there are anywhere from 599 to 603 additional laws that are in effect, or excuse me, that were in effect, that no longer are in effect for the day. And those all come under these two categories, the ceremonial law and the civil law. Ceremonial and civil. Remember, we told, I told you at the beginning that the nation of Israel, these were given to the nation of Israel. They were not given to us. They were given to the nation of Israel so that they would be a peculiar, that they would be a chosen, that they would be unique 
in a sense, so that other nations, when they look at that, they would say, oh yeah, those are the guys that practice this type of hygiene, that they practice this type of ceremony, they practice this type of civil law. And so when we see a lot of these customs and a lot of these laws, that's what they were. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled those, and we are no longer, no longer under <clears throat> contractual agreement for civil law, <clears throat> according to the Scripture of Old Testament, or the ceremonial law. Um, Galatians 4 tells us very clearly that Jesus has abolished this, okay? <clears throat> but, again, I want to remind you, <clears throat> the commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament in various places. So the moral law is still in effect for us today. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so with that understanding, uh, probably the best way to understand it is God is giving us not a law that restricts us from being able to do anything, but enables us to live in the creation that he has made for us most effectively and most fulfilling. Uh, you know, I was reading an article uh, yesterday, uh, uh, and, you know, I'm not getting into the big helmet law on motorcycles, but there was a group that was protesting wearing helmets uh, on 4th of July, and this one man was, was kind of the leader of the pack, and this was up in uh, Parish, New York, and he's protesting helmet, the helmet law. I, wear, I ride a motorcycle, I shouldn't have to wear a helmet, and he has an accident. His motorcycle spins out of control, he goes head first over his motorcycle, hits his head, cracks his skull, and, and dies on the scene. And police said, well, I, not to be rude, but if he had been wearing a helmet, he most certainly probably would have lived. Now, again, I'm not here to debate whether you should wear a helmet or not. Actually, I think you should, by the way. But um, if you're going to ride a motorcycle, you got to put a helmet on. All right, my wife used to work at Baylor Rehab. She is horrified by it. But nevertheless, a lot of times we'll look at that and we'll go, why am I being controlled? And some of us just don't understand seat belts are the same way. That that law is meant for your good, for your betterment, for your protection. It's not meant to take away a right, but to help, help, you give, help give you life. And that's what God is doing through the law right here. Why did God give Israel the law? To reveal his glory and his holiness, Deuteronomy 5.24 tells us. To reveal man's sinfulness. Paul lets us know, I wouldn't even have understood what sin was if not for the law. To mark Israel as his unique and chosen people, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 17. And to point us toward our need for a Savior. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus met the righteous requirements of the law. And Jesus now writes the law of God in our hearts. If you have your Bibles, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, and let's look and see what Jesus says right here in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. It is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe, those who recognize what sin is and that sin covered them. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming to faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It is our guardian, and that was the purpose of the law. People still knew Yahweh by faith. 
But the law was the guide. It was the structure that helped them to live according to Yahweh's principles in his heart. Now, as you look at the Ten Commandments, they're broken up into two parts. The first four are about man's relationship to God. As a matter of fact, you could, you could say this. They teach us how to love God. And we'll see that in just a moment in the first, first commandment. The first four commandments are how we love God. It's our relationship as mankind to God. And then the next six are man's relationship to his fellow man. Okay, so that's how it's broken up. Now, before we read our text here in Exodus chapter 20, there are a couple of terms I want you to understand. The first one is Yahweh. We've talked about this. This was the covenant name of God Almighty. God, we all know, is just a generic name, okay? That's a generic name we use, but when we say God, of course, we're referring to the God of the universe. We're referring to Yahweh God. Number two, suzerain. Now, suzerain is a a form of a treaty, and a suzerain, the way that it worked, matter of fact, it goes with the next word, vassal. Anytime there was a suzerain treaty, which was very common in biblical time, a suzerain treaty would go like this. A suzerain would be the mighty nation, okay? It would be the nation who was dominant, who would control. And uh, they might come in and conquer, or they might simply go to another nation. Typically, instead of let's get into this big battle, here's here's the way it's going to be. We will protect and we will give, we will provide for you if you will serve us. There was usually some kind of tax pay. You had to promise to be loyal. There were some commitments and some stipulations that were made from the vassal, which was the servant, to the suzerain, which was the king. So you have the king nation and the servant nation. The vassal nation is the servant nation. It's the smaller nation. It's the nation that could not possibly ever overcome the suzerain, the mighty king, the mighty nation, okay? So, and the reason I'm telling you this, because chapter 20 is written in treaty language. It's written in covenant language, okay? And God is the suzerain king. Israel is the vassal nation, okay? So that makes sense. Some of you studied this in history. You're very familiar with it. Uh, Thirdly, there's a word called kana. Now, we don't actually know what The word is, it's K-A in the Hebrew as we transliterate it, and we don't exactly know how to translate it today, but we're going to use the word kana. That's how uh, many theologians translate it. And that word kana means red hot, and literally as it regards to God, it's only used for God, red hot uh, indignation is probably the best way to understand it. But in our scripture, we usually translate it jealousy because there's more to that word. We don't have the equivalent word of kana in our English language, but we're going to talk about that. It's the word that typically used for jealousy, and kana means it's righteous anger. It's righteous indignation, okay? Uh, But it's even fuller than that, and we'll talk about kana here in just a moment. What it is not, and you never see in Scripture, and again, this is only a word that's used for God, is it's never a picture of of insecurity, okay? So when you see that word for jealousy, it's not, God's so insecure, he doesn't know what to do, all right? It just, it hurts his feelings. That's not the picture of Kana whatsoever. Then the term blessing. What does blessing mean typically, particularly in the Old Testament and Scripture? It is protection and provision, okay? Protection and provision. The suzerain would give the vassal, this is the blessing, I will provide and protect, as long as you meet the terms that have been given to you, 
you will receive protection and you will receive provision, okay? Now, also, I think it's important to know because sometimes we, we miss out on this part. There are two types of blessings, okay, when the Scripture talks about blessing. There's the blessing of you succeed, so to speak, but there's also the blessing of you're sustained through uh, hard times. And sometimes people were martyred. In other words, you suffered for the kingdom. That's even regarded as a blessing. And we see Jesus talking about that in Matthew chapter 5, certainly if we go back to the Beatitudes. But that's the blessing. Sometimes you're blessed to succeed. Sometimes you're blessed to suffer. And that doesn't go over very well in our culture today. But in God's economy, that's what blessing is. All right. So with that understanding, let's look at our text, beginning in Exodus chapter 20, beginning with the first verse. Now, in a suzerain covenant, in a, in a tree, there, again, there were four elements that always transpired. The first one was this. The suzerain, the king, the mighty king, was identified. So he's first identified. Number two, a history of what is going on, of what has happened and what the situation is given. Number three, stipulations are given And number four, consequences are listed if those stipulations are not met. With that understanding, chapter 20, verse 1 of the book of Exodus. And God spoke all these words and saying. So this is God speaking. This is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. I am the Lord your God. He's identifying who he is. The suzerain, he is identifying I am the Lord your God, Adonai, Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He's listing for them what he has done. It's the current reality. It's the history. This is what's transpired. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Here are the stipulations. Here are the Ten Commandments. Here are the Ten Words. Here's the Decalogue that's given here. Here are the stipulations. So he's identified, this is who I am. This is what I've done. I made a covenant commitment with Abraham. And now this covenant commitment, I am renewing it here with you. And here are the stipulations. This is how you should live as my people, as my holy nation. You shall have no other gods before, a better translation would be, besides me. I will be your God and your God alone. Continuing here. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth that is earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Let me just stop here for a second to say, the truth of it is, uh, the, the Jews believe, many of the rabbis, not all of them, but most of the rabbis believe that the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, all the laws fall under one of those ten. So there are almost ten categories is the way that they would look at them. Now, the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. And we see Jesus coming along and says, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Now, that law right there, if, that, if we get that one, really everything else is taken care of. The problem is everything else flows from us not making God the central figure and the central purpose of our life, of not making him first, okay? That's where everything else comes. Because if God 
is in control of our lives, the rest of these all naturally flow. But because God is not the center of our lives frequently, because he is frequently not first, he is not the focus, then these other things happen. These other things come about. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. What's that all about? Well, because all the other gods were carved image. They were made of stone. Some of them might be made of bronze or some other precious metal. Sometimes they were wood. Sometimes they were an animal. Sometimes they were a river. Sometimes they were a mountain. But this is the God that cannot be contained or controlled. And he wants the people to understand, I don't even want you to make a symbol of me because I don't want to be compared to the other nations that point there is the God because I am the God of all things. And there are no other gods besides me. I am the one true and only God. So do not make any graven or carved images or any likeness of things that are in heaven or on earth or in the water below. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God, and I am a kana God. I am a jealous God. There's that word. I would dare say, there are a lot of offensive words, but this would be up there in the top ten of most offensive words that really disturb people when they read the Scripture, particularly people if you're not a believer and you read that, you're a jealous God. I remember one time, I I don't watch this show, so please don't put this on me, but I used to love my wife every once in a while and do it. Um, Oprah, okay? I remember Oprah saying one day, she goes, you know, I was in church one day and I was listening to it and the preacher said, God is a jealous God. I go, a jealous God? I don't want to serve a God that's jealous. That's not going to be my God. And that comes from a complete misunderstanding of the word kana, okay? So, obviously, there's the picture of marriage. When you marry someone, you make a covenant commitment. Just like I'm wearing my wedding ring today, I made a covenant commitment to my wife. And what I'm saying by that covenant, I'm saying, you are to be my wife, I am to be your husband. And I am asking you to faithfully commit to me, and I'm going to faithfully commit to you. And I'm asking you to take no, mo- no other man into our relationship. That doesn't mean you don't have friends and relatives, but in our intimate relationship, you and I are covenant and we are committed to one another and no other man should be before me. And that's the commitment. And no other woman should be before you. And that's the picture God is given here. When he made this covenant agreement, he's saying, hey, I am a one God type of God. There are no other gods beside me. Most of you would say, you know what? Most of you women would say, hey, I'm a one-man kind of guy. Most of the men would say, I'm a one-woman. I I do not want to share my wife with anyone else. This is a covenant commitment. And we certainly understand that in culture. I know in other cultures that's more difficult to understand. But innately, there's no woman, I believe, that says, you know, it'd be fine. My wife, my husband, have a few other wives. And I don't even think any man in his right mind would say, I'll take three or four. I don't think that. I don't even think you want that. I mean, God had a design for what was best for us when he made it. All right. He knew what he was doing and we want to flub it all up. And God's saying, no other shall be in this relationship with me. Um, You know, if that's not strong enough for you, think about the military. If you were military and someone, you found out someone was committing treason, one of your former 
uh, brothers in the military, or maybe it would be even a woman that was in the military, and you find out that, that from your same unit, someone has defected, and now they are, they are supporting the other nation, whether that's North Korea or wh- whoever it is, ISIS. You find out, and every once in a while we'll see a, a soldier, uh, you know, we'll find, we'll find that, that defects. How, do, how would you feel about that? Would you feel insecure? Golly, I really hate that they went to be with them. If you're a soldier, or if you're a soldier, or if you're part of the armed service, you would go. It would make you mad. Righteous indignation. You would think about the commitment that you've made to your country, that you've made to your brothers and sisters, and it angers you. You're not jealous in an insecurity. You're angry because they have not honored the covenant commitment that they've made. Does that make sense? So God is not insecure when He says this. And so I'm sorry, Oprah's wrong. I, I could probably say that about a hundred times. Oprah's wrong in her interpretation of understanding Scripture. So now that we understand what God means when he says, I am a jealous God, visiting, here's another difficult part, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing hesed, steadfast love to thousands of generations for those who love and keep my commitments. Now, let's go back. Often, matter of fact, almost most of the time, when you see the term blessing and curse, remember what the blessing and curse is. The blessing is protection and provision. The curse is, I am not going to come, I am not going to, ble- I'm not going to provide, and I'm not going uh, to sustain or, excuse me, protect the removal of the blessing. So the curse is, you don't get the blessing. You don't get the provision. You don't get the protection. That's what the curse is. And so when we see here, he says, it visits uh, the third and the fourth generation. We know if we had time, we could go and we could look at Ezekiel. Matter of fact, if you want to look it up later on, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, uh, very specifically lets us know that we are each accountable for our sins and that the sins of the fathers, the, the children are not punished by God because of the sins of their father. That doesn't mean it doesn't impact them, Okay but God is not holding them accountable. Does that make sense? But sometimes when you sin as parents, it has direct effects on the children. So when parents choose to ignore Yahweh God in this covenant, when they choose to follow another God, that influences the children. And it also removes the blessing that that family would have received. And that impacts up to the third and fourth generation, as opposed to the parent who has faithfully served Yahweh. And that's what the children have learned and that's what they have seen. And he says that impact goes on and on and on and on. That's still important for us today. It's the difference between receiving the blessing and not receiving the blessing. It's the difference between having the hedge of protection that God puts around us and saying, I'm going to operate outside that hedge of protection with my family. So when we look at that, don't look at that and say, that's so archaic. The truth for us today is, do we live inside the blessing, or do we just say, I, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do the Ted turn. I, I don't want those commandments. I don't want these things being told to me. I'm going to live. I'm going to do what I want. And we're going to say, I'm going to remove myself from the blessing, from the protection, from the provision of God. And I'm going to choose to operate outside of that realm. Again, I'm not saying that you'll never have hard times when you keep all the commandments. That's not what I'm saying. As we talked about earlier, sometimes you may suffer because it's righteous. But you have a God 
whose spirit sustains you because you choose to walk with him. The Bible continues here and it says, but showing steadfast love, the Hesed love of God to those who keep my commandments. And lastly, he says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, almost everyone thinks of that passage of that verse, not taking God's name in vain, not cursing with the name of God. Now, that, that's certainly a way that we can profane the name of God. We can remove the holiness of the name of God. But more specifically, what he's talking about, and I think it can be better understood as Jesus helps us understand in Matthew chapter 5, it's taking, it's misusing the name of God. It's making a pledge in the name of God and not intending to keep it. It's trying to get someone to do something attached to the name of God and then not doing it. It's making a covenant before God and not keeping it. So in a sense, if I make a covenant with my wife and I don't keep that covenant and I leave her, I have taken God's name in vain if I made that covenant before God. And we don't like to talk about it that way, do we? But that's really the bigger picture. Now, let's, let's look. I think that merits us looking in the New Testament as Jesus gives us a better explanation in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have that, let's look at that for just a moment in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. If you have your Bibles, let's, let's look at that. And I think you'll have a better understanding of what God is talking about here and certainly Jesus' explanation uh, as he's speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 33, the Bible says, And again, you've heard that it was said of old, <coughs> You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So in other words, if you take an oath, under oath, particularly if God's name is attached, you should do that. If not, you've taken his name in vain. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. If you can't keep it, if you're not certain you're going to keep it. He's not saying you can never take oaths. He's saying, don't take an oath you cannot keep. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for the city of the great king. And do not take each other, and do not take each an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or simply let this be said simply of you, yes or no, anything else comes from the evil one. What was happening is they had elaborate, the Pharisees and Sadducees, had, uh, uh, they had developed an elaborate system of how you could say things under oath, but then get out of them. So it's the equivalent of, you know, I, I promise you, and you kind of you kind of cross your fingers and put them behind your back. There were certain stipulations they were, they were saying, well, I, I committed on this level, and then there's this level, and this level, and this level. And there are certain things that would allow them to get out of it. And he's saying, no, if you take an oath, if you make a covenant, I want you to recognize, this is just kind of like going back to chapter 20, you have made a covenant before God, and you are to keep it. And when you don't, you profane my name. You take it in vain anytime my name is mentioned. And this is the way we do it today. We say something like this. We go, boy, I, I swear to God, 
That's taking God's name in vain if you don't keep it. If you're not sincere, if you don't recognize the holiness of it. Now, we have to do that before a court of law, and I think that's perfectly permissible. But to to enact perjury is taking God's name in vain. On any commitment that you sign in your name as a covenant Christian and follower of God that you do not intend to keep, that's taking the name of God because you are His, and you are under His name now. Now, when we think about that, that elevates. Jesus is elevating the whole system. It's, he's elevating the whole understanding of the law. And let's look at this. Again, questions come up, but weren't the Ten Commandments for the Old Testament? Again, we find them all in the New Testament. Let's go through them here each. Matter of fact, I'm going to ask him to put them on the board here. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23, Matthew 14, 410. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Continue. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Flee from idolatry, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, and then the passage we just read. The next, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. Now, I would say in this one, this one's debated sometimes whether this is a ritual law. Uh, but here's what we know. We know that God gave us a day. He, matter of fact, we know even for our health, center, there's good to designate a day. Does it have to be Sunday? Does it have to be Saturday? But there should be a day that we designate for worship. That's something special that we set aside for the purpose of worship, that we set aside for the purpose of concentrating and focusing on Him. Continue. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother in Matthew 19, 19. You shall not murder and by the way, uh, that's the correct word, murder. This is not kill, murder. It means to unlawfully take life. You shall not unlawfully take life. You shall not murder. And that translation in, in Romans 13 would be the same. As we continue, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus talked about that, and then you see it again in Matthew 19, 18. You shall not steal. Romans 13, 19, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against, uh, false witness, period. You shall not covet. Paul says, Romans chapter 7, verse 7, you shall not covet. So we see all the commandments are found. So they are not extinct. They are not just part of the old covenant. They're not like the regulations. They're not like the ceremonial. They're not like the judicial laws that were given that Jesus has now fulfilled. The law was meant to be a shadow of what was to come, as we talked about at the beginning. It was a picture of how we should live until the one who would come would fulfill the law and show us and teach us exactly how to live. And probably one of the best examples of the familiar law is found there in Matthew chapter 5. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a, my first semester, I had a Professor Virtus Gideon, who taught Greek and also taught New Testament. And uh, Dr. Gideon, part of our class, part of what we learned about was uh, the, the Old Testament covenant and the Ark of the Covenant and how in the New Testament, uh, when Jesus died, the veil, the four-inch veil, by the way, uh, that was four inches uh, thick, scholars say anywhere from 30 to 40 feet high, 
when Jesus died, we know according to Matthew chapter 27, that that veil was rent from the top to the bottom. Now, what was significant about that? Well, up to that point, the way that the people's sins were atoned for, particularly on Yom Kippur for the sins of the nation, the high priest would go in and he would go into the place called the Holy of Holies. And he had to go through this elaborate system of purification. And he would get in there and he would offer the sacrifice. He would atone for the sins of the nation. And in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The primary, there was there are a couple of other little things. But the primary thing that was inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the reasons that we know that the Ten Commandments are significant, every once in a while you'll talk to someone, hey, they're all kind of laws. Why are the Ten Commandments special? Well, think about this. How, were the, how did we get the Ten Commandments? First of all, we know that God spoke them. And secondly, we know, we, according to Deuteronomy 4, if you want to go back and look this up, you can in Deuteronomy 4, God wrote them. Every other scripture in the Bible, God inspired man to write them. But the Ten Commandments were written, and then we actually hear him speaking. We see that it's spoken. Again, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, I believe it's verse 13 and 14, that they were spoken and written by God. And, they're, and they were considered holy, so they're placed in the Ark of the Covenant. But they are separated. Everyone certainly knew what they were, but nobody got to see them because they're separated in the Holy of Holies by the veil. What does Jesus do when he comes? When the perfect comes, he fulfills. And the veil is rent. And there's no longer the presence of God in the Holy of Holies confined there. No longer the Ten Commandments confined there. It's rent open and Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills the covenant. He fulfills the sacrifice. What's interesting is uh, my last day of Dr. Gideon's class. We've been taught about the veil. We've been taught about the new covenant. And what was interesting is uh, after I took the test, Dr. Gideon goes home and he dies in his yard before he even gets in his house. So what was interesting to me is the man who was teaching us about the veil, the veil had been lifted and he had received Christ and he was now teaching young ministers and young students. And then the final veil was lifted. And he was literally in the presence of of God. Why? Because the first veil had been written to. Christ had fulfilled the law, and by grace now we are saved through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And then that final veil was lifted, and he was literally in the presence of where he could see God. That's the gift, that's the grace for every believer. God gave us the law of how we should then live, but then he fulfilled it, and our salvation has been granted, and he's fulfilled the law through Jesus Christ that we might have life as he intended for us to have it. I want you to prepare your heart for a time of communion. And so if you would, I want you to take just a moment, and I want you to recognize what the law is for that the law is to help us identify the sin of our life so that we know right for wrong. And Jesus has come and he's helped us to understand the heart of the law that we can commit sin even within our own heart. We can commit murder in our own heart. 
But when we confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For just a moment, I want you to go through a time of confession if you are a believer and prepare your heart to receive from the table of the Lord as we receive of the bread and of the cup from the one who lived the life that we should have lived according to the law and died the death that we should have died according to the law. But he did it on our behalf so that we might put our trust and faith in him because the veil has been rent and torn in two. And though we understand our sin, we can know that our sin is covered. And now we live out the desires and the law of Christ, not so that it will save us, not so that it will forgive us, but because we've already been saved, because we've already been forgiven, and because we want to honor and love the Lord. Prepare your heart. Make yourself ready.